Joining me on the line from the Creation Museum, I have founder of Answers in Genesis and tax avoidance expert, Ken Ham. Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, great to be with you. Now, Ken, you have some issues with my blog post recently regarding your 101 working replica scale of Ray Comfort's 8 horsepower solid gold butt plug. You're one of the ones that's been writing false information. Very well. Well, that's why I invited you on the show to discuss this in great detail. You don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. Well, here's our chance to set the record straight. Apparently my blog post entitled Answers in Genocide blew the whole project completely out of proportion. And that's how the rumour actually started. Well, I'd rather deal with facts than rumour, so let's go. You and your team have painstakingly rebuilt a replica 8 horsepower solid gold butt plug. It must be quite large. Massive size. Which would require a lot of land. Oh, the interesting thing was when we actually moved ahead and had a contract on some land, not knowing exactly how we're going to build this or what we're going to do, we then had to get it rezoned and it, it was rezoned and it, it fitted with you know the county's rules and regulations and so on. Understandable, given the enormity of it. So that's important for you to understand from the start. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. So, so let's talk engineering. Surely you consulted the Bible for such a project to determine the shape? Um, the Bible doesn't tell us a particular shape. Then you must have guessed at the shape. No, that's not true. Uh, in fact, uh, we've had uh, engineers work on this as well as architects. The Bible doesn't tell us the exact shape. So how were you able to draw up some schematics? We know the... Uh, the dimensions, because it gives us uh, the length, it gives us the breadth, it gives us the height in cubit. Gotcha, but there are variations on what a cubit actually is. There's reasons why we've taken a particular cubit, uh, the Egyptian cubit. See, to me, the layperson, it would have been more sensible to go with, say, the Syrian cubit or the North Korean cubit. Perhaps I'm just misinformed. That doesn't really alter too much except uh, the overall length a little bit. Well, I'm glad you're here to sort that out. Now, your detractors have attacked you for putting a bow on such a large replica, calling the project unbiblical. There's nothing unbiblical about putting a bow on it at all. In fact, it's much more stable in water. So the replica is designed to operate in water? The people that did the research for us showed that with that uh, structure on it, it would uh, act like a fin. Who would do experiments like that? The, the government even has had uh, independent people research this. Ah, the government. It all makes sense now. You haven't seen those studies. Well, it's not something I'd go out of my way to search on Google for. Did you consult Ray Comfort for this project? It would have had all sorts of technological know-how. I've no doubt. But I must ask, is this replica functional? As in, have you used it? The forces would be quite considerable. But at a 100 to 1 scale, how could it possibly be inserted into a normal rectal cavity? The average size is actually not that big. Yeah, the, the average size, but... Are you suggesting your back passage is above average size? It must be cavernous. There's really plenty of room. Oof, well, I've just broken a sweat thinking about it. Let's move along to the challenges you overcame. How would you describe them? Sort of like a chess game. You had all these different people trying to influence others to try to stop us from building this. So people were slandering your character to prevent you from constructing it? It was just ridiculous, the accusations, and the accusations got worse and worse. But you soldiered on regardless and built the replica butt plug. On the opening day, we had a big uh, tent out the front for the media, and we had many media from all over the world. Oh, of course, understandable. The world would have been waiting impatiently for the news. So the media were all gathered there, and, and I said, you know, that uh, first of all, I want to give thanks and praise to the, to the Lord, because this is really his 
From what I saw, you actually demonstrated the device for a Fox News reporter. Then we end up being headline news. In fact, if I recall correctly, you were all the while screaming... What men meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, that just sounds completely immoral. Of course, as an atheist, you have no basis anyway for morality. Ken Ham, thanks for your time. Thank you, and uh, it, it really is an important ministry because many people are being led astray by the teaching of evolution as if it's fact that, you know, man... Uh, it came about by natural processes, and we need to help people understand not only did God create them, but because we're sinners, uh, he provides a way of salvation for us so we can go back to be with him. It's the most important message uh, in the whole universe. Um, Adam, I, I look forward to what you do with our interview, Adam. <laughs> no, you... I don't at all. I would be mortified. <laughs> I'm not, not going to do anything to you, don't worry. <laughs> Welcome to The Herd Mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection and, God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality, and with me down the line, it's yet another invasion of the theists. It's been far too long. Rory Shiner, how are you, sir? Very good, thanks, Adam. How are you? Very well, thanks. You're from Perth? I am. Over the other side of Australia, a completely different time zone, difficult to get there by bus. That's right. All those things are true. And also, you've brought some friends with you. We've got uh, Michael at M. P. Jensen. How are you? That's, I'm very well, thank you, uh, Adam. It's great to be here. I'm over this side. I'm in Sydney, so closer to you than the others. You could have been over here drinking beer with me. I could. We've yeah. all sort of uh, jumped in together at the last minute. And lastly, we also have, over uh, as well over in Perth, we've got at Jared McKenna. Jared, how are you? Adam, how are you? Well, thank you. Thanks for joining in. Now, everybody's a believer in one form or another, and I think it's probably fair to kick off the show with a little bit of clarification. Given that you're sort of the cornerstone of all of this, Rory, what do you believe in and why? I'd describe myself as a vanilla, standard-issue, Nicene creed-believing Christian. So I believe in, in God as revealed in Jesus Christ and the great tradition of the small-c Catholic faith, the creedal faith. Rightio. Okay. For full disclosure, I I am not, but I, <laughs> what? I love talking about it. You do realise. Uh, there's, there's been a horrible mistake here. I, yeah, no, just joking. <laughs> actually, Rory, one of the things that you mentioned to me, because we spoke briefly on the phone prior to this call, was that you're actually a fan of Christopher Hitchens. I am. I've I, I followed Christopher Hitchens for a long uh, time. And it, before he started publishing on um, anti-theist views, I, I really miss him now, especially with the with, whenever there's conflict in the Middle East, you realise how much you miss Christopher Hitchens. Because I didn't always agree with him, obviously, but I think his, his sense of justice, his literary uh, taste and his independence of mind, his ability to surprise you with uh, the conclusions he came to, I just, I'm always impressed by people who exhibit that independence. You know, and, and he wrote like an angel. He just was a, a prince of the language. So I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. And Michael and Jared, are you familiar with the works of Hitchens? I'm not so much. I mean, I, I've, I've read a little bit, and I, I can't say he's to my taste. I found him rather bombastic and full of himself. So I didn't really warm to him in the way that Rory has. I mean, my first real interaction with him was his book on. God is not great, which is so full of errors and half truths and rhetoric. I don't, you know, I, I wasn't very impressed. But I got to know a little bit his uh, his sister-in-law actually in, in England, and, and it must have been a great family for uh, dinner table debates. That's all I can say. <laughs> 
Yes, because his brother actually sits on the other side of the fence, doesn't he? He certainly does, Peter Hitchens, and and likewise is a great is a great mouth. You know, he's kind of he's a <laughs> great talker, great Oxford debaters. You know, it's that sort of tradition of being able to talk and talk well and persuasively in a way which pretty intimidating. Actually, it's interesting to hear the same kind of flavour coming from a different point of view. Hmm. And what about you, Jared? I I sit on a different fence entirely to both Hitchens brothers. So I'm I'm much more a, a fan of his uh, former comrade Terry Eagleton. Hitchens' kind of apologetics for the war in Iraq I, I find uh, deeply disturbing. And uh, while I I have appreciation of his brilliance in terms of a communicator and a, a writer, in, in terms of favourite atheist, he doesn't rate for me amongst the greats of uh, a Critchley or a Badu or a Slavoj Žižek in in my book. Right. Well, I've got some reading to do. <laughs> Not very familiar. Oh, you, you should be, Adam. Some of the greatest continental atheist philosophers in the world today. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And quite critical of uh, where um, Hitchens is coming from, both politically and his caricatures of faith. Right, yeah. So let me throw an open question out to whoever wants to jump in first. What is God to a believer? Well, God is the being beyond the, the physical. The ground of all being might be a good way of... The sort the ground and source of all being might be a good way to say it, so that you don't get far by talking about God as if simply as a kind of character within the flow of cause and event. He is the source of all cause and cause and effect, cause and event. I guess that's a beginning. And then he's, he's, of course, in Christian thought, the creator, the one who makes the material rather than subject to the material. Mm. Okay, so obviously the question I think I would lean towards there is how do you know when there's so many other different faiths claiming the same thing? How do we know that the Christian God... I'd, or the... I'd, I'd say that that particular vision of theism that I've just put up is not specifically or restrictively a Christian theism. Mm-hmm. And there's more to say, of course, because Christians will, will want to refract theism in a particular way, that kind of vision of theism is a very, that there's, a, there's an enormous, you might say, consensus amongst different religious traditions, even though they might disagree about how they interact with that being, so that even in Hinduism, which is polytheistic and about as different a religion to Christianity as you could find, there is an, this notion of an ultimate being who is the source of all other being, the unmoved mover, that kind of uh, idea. So it's a widespread consensus, I'd say, in this idea of theism. So are any of them more right than the other? Uh, any of them. I'm saying that in one sense, there's a consensus on what God is uh, at, at that level. They, uh, how one approaches God, there's, uh, that's when... Uh, how God reveals himself, that's where the religions differ, I would say. So, so I'm just pointing to agreement in the first instance. Mm. I guess, Adam, I, I would start from a different starting point. Michael's done a, a good job of naming kind of a, a philosophical starting point. I would want to start with a very concrete kind of stories around a, a God who hears the cries of the oppressed and responds with strange things like burning bushes and a, a dude named Moses right through to to the life of, of Jesus. But I think it is important to name that when we talk about religion, the way the conversations often frame, particularly when we talk about religion and violence, which might come up later, religion as we think about it currently is, is new since the Enlightenment, that really before then it's just that fish don't know they're wet and it's the stories you kind of swim in. So there's a, a question around, I don't have a problem talking 
talking about uh, religions being violent, as long as we name neoliberalism as a religion that animates most people's uh, imaginations in our late capitalist society. But at the same time, we're then talking about a kind of humility in how we talk about, even the word religion comes from the Latin, uh, where we get the word ligaments, what holds our world together. So Aline Badu, who I mentioned at the start, he, he would say the kind of truth that is involved in acts of faith is neither independent from propositional truth and nor is it reducible to it. And I, I wonder if the starting point instead of Buddhism versus Islam versus Christianity, that we also bring into that whatever is the worldview that kind of frames our way of engaging in the world. If, if we're to talk about a truth act which actually calls us into what might be performative in terms of actually acting in the world and not just oppositional. If I could chime in, I, like, I absolutely agree with both my friends and with Michael that I think there is one of the things I don't buy in the modern atheist, in the current discourse at least, is the idea that there are, you know, there are thousands of gods and which god don't you believe in, as if there's just these, these hundreds of thousands of things that are postulated to be in the world and by empirical investigation we would find them. I think Michael is exactly right that there is a, a a consensus in the in those those great monotheistic traditions of uh, the, the the Greeks and the and Hinduism and uh, and Christianity and so on about that the um, as Paul said in in Athens that the one in whom we live and move and have our being that's an important point and I think we've if I can be with Jared a Greek philosopher at that time actually <laughs> too. <wasn't he? laughs> Exactly. It's, a, it's an extraordinary moment in the Bible story where the Apostle Paul, who is nothing if not partisan, he's all for Jesus and believes that, if I can quote another theologian called Robert Jensen, that Robert Jensen, the American theologian, says that God is whoever raised Jesus Christ from the dead, having previously rescued Israel from Egypt. I sit with both of those things. I think there is a rational tradition that postulates a being beyond being. And I think for us Christians in particular, there's a story of a God who worked in Israel and in Jesus Christ, as Jared says, to hear the cries of the oppressed, to rescue his creation and to, to redeem the universe. So I think that's a great moment in Athens. It's in the um, New Testament book of Acts where Paul, who tells the story of Israel culminating in Jesus Christ, is able to quote the Greek uh, poet for his source of God. So I, I, I'm trying to be the, the guy in between saying I think both, of the, both what Michael has said and what Jared has said said are essential truths of the Christian claim. Mm, very yeah. well. I'm probably going to have to listen over that several times to, to process it all because there's quite a lot of information <laughs> there. Okay, so what is a God to a believer? But then, in your view, guys, what is God to an atheist? <laughs> I have to ask an atheist at one level. Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm asking for your for your perceptions on, on what you think an atheist perceives God to be. I wonder, Adam, if I can jump in, fellas, if you don't mind. Um, Eagleton has a, a really helpful way of framing where these conversations actually go wrong, where the great intellectual tradition, which is atheism in the West, is often dismissed by people of faith, and the richness of the intellectual tradition of faith is dismissed by those on the other side. And Eagleton has created this mythical creature, which he calls Ditchkins, which you can probably pick up from the name, is a, is a hybrid of uh, <laughs> not the greats of atheist continent philosophy, but two figures who have become very popular in a quite a rabid and often um, caricatures of faith. So Eagleton talks about how the Ditchkins-like blunder of believing religion is a botched attempt to explain the world is something akin to the ballet as a botched attempt for running for the bus. <laughs> 
if we actually frame it that way, the, the question for both sides isn't around empirical truths and how to argue each other in, but what are the learnings that uh, we can make from these great traditions in respectful and humble conversation around that when we talk about these things in part, Part of the truth claim is that this is a truth bigger than us and we can't monopolize it. And that's a very different place to start a conversation and has some real philosophical humility when actually engaging this conversation. I absolutely agree. Being able to have an open and frank discussion and do something like challenge oneself or be challenged by others, it's going to have a, a good knock-on effect overall because you walk away from the discussion having things to think about and perhaps you'll even have enough information to change a world view or, or adjust your position. So I'm with you on that. But when it comes to this truth, what, what did you mean by truth? Well, I, I think that's exactly my point, Adam, that we're starting to enter into what kind of epistemology are we actually speaking? So how do we know what is true is true? Mm -hmm. And Dickard would in insist that, in fact, it is one who is in love who can talk about God. So rather than you and I can both put the same evidence out uh, for consideration, and I might say, my, my wife, Teresa, is gorgeous and so intelligent and funny. And you might look at all that and go, yep, but doesn't float my boat. <laughs> and I think when we're talking about um, this conversation, there are parallels in that we're talking about a relational reality that asks us to act in the world in such a way. I mean, this is very Augustinian in a way, but certain truths can only be arrived at through a response of loving engagement. Right. Well, yeah. cer certain truths. Yeah. yeah, Adam, if I could jump in there, one of the guys that we talked about briefly in our telephone conversation who I'm very warm towards is a chemist turned philosopher called Michael Polanyi from Hungary and a, a, a Jewish man. I think he, he did convert, perhaps his family had converted to Catholicism. But at any rate, he was around at the time that logical positivism was a fashionable in the in the universities and so on. And he, as an active scientist, felt that logical positivism wasn't a sufficient account of how we know and went on to become a philosopher. And part of his kind of shtick, his, uh, his claim was that even within uh, science, as someone who could report from the lab, that science involves imagination, commitment, love and faith, that you, you know, you go into the lab not just an impartial observer, but an, an active, interested participant, expecting that that the things that you see, you know, I, the whole process of hypothesis involves imagination and uh, and commitment and so on. And I I find that a much fuller account of epistemology and to what Jared says that I think we need to the idea of pitting science against religion is a is a great shame because science is so overwhelmingly good in its realm and so on. I just want to say that we can go bigger than that, that there are things that are known truly through love and commitment and uh, and so on. Okay. <laughs> As I say, I, I think I'm going to have to to sift back through this and, and process some of it because I guess I'm, a, I'm, I'm more of a black and white kind of guy. <laughs> That <laughs> might be the, the most accurate way of putting it. Let I don't I don't hear my colleagues here, by the way, just sliding into mere subjectivism. Uh, that would be easy to, to think. I think they're just, I've tried in my book as well to speak about the humanness of knowers and of, of knowing that all of those kind of features of our humanness are, are built up in knowing and a bigger account of that actually helps in the discussion, whether you come down on an atheist or a theist side in the end. 
Mm. Any other thoughts? I think, yeah, I mean, Michael's book talks about this. It's a, I really I like his book. And one of the things I think we all would agree on is, I think it's Heidegger who says this, that we're thrown into the world by which he means that, you know, you, you arrive in this world embodied and you're, you know, you have loves and hates and circumstances. And, you know, I was born into a Christian family and that has enormous, you know, enormous sway on why I'm a Christian now. So is Nietzsche, by Yes, that's right. The traffic goes every which way. There's, uh, <laughs> there's smart Christians that have become atheists. There are smart atheists that have become Christians. There are people from Christian backgrounds that have rejected the faith and people from non-Christian backgrounds that have accepted it. So they, the, the traffic goes every which way. But I think I think just naming our locatedness as people who are embodied in sets of relationships is a really important part, of, as Michael says, not of becoming subjective, but of reaching a, a better sense of what we know and, and what we don't know, which is, I might say, knowing what you don't know is an enormous part of mature religious faith and mature Christian faith. Being able to say that there are, you can fill a vast warehouse with the things that I don't know about God and don't understand about God. And the Christian tradition has a long tradition of doubt and grappling with doubt and living with doubt. And I think that's an essential part of mature, of being a mature Christian. And, and I sometimes mourn for fellow Christians who have who've got rid of the faith in a very and what they got rid of, it turns out, to me at least, was a very kind of fundamentalist or, or just immature version of the faith that hadn't learnt to grapple with doubt and, and unknowing and that, that kind of thing. I had that written down as a question. Do you ever doubt? If you allowed me a question, I, I wanted to ask that about yourself. Like I was reading Thomas Nagel the other day, his stuff on consciousness, and he he, although an atheist, doubts the power of atheism to account for something like consciousness. So, I mean, I can say that I do doubt. It's a regular part of Christian experience. But could, could I ask you the same question? Do you ever wonder whether atheism sufficiently accounts for the world? Every day. Cool. But and, but, but when you say Adam, a- atheism, I think you're using that perhaps incorrectly. Okay. Atheism being just a lack of belief in, in a God. As, as a human being, I doubt every day. I adjust my views when new information is presented. That, and mm. this is why I'm not a theist, because I'm yet to be presented with reasonable evidence to suggest that there is a God. I don't see how tying consciousness and atheism together... I'm not sure where you were going with that, if you could Oh, clarify. sorry, that, that's my bad. Well, uh, Adam, no, Rory, sorry. I wonder if it actually starts to get to more of the things that we share in common, that, in fact, philosophically, Christianity is a agnostic religion, <laughs> Uh, and I, I mean that in the technical sense that we claim no special knowledge that isn't open to, to everybody else. What we make of that is another consideration. How we assess that is another consideration. But that's something around the epistemological humility that we were talking about earlier. So the question for me is not, I would have answered the question exactly the same words you have, daily reconsidering. And I, I think that's something we share in common. Doubt's a good thing. It keeps us alive. <laughs> but when you're saying that Christianity makes no special claims as to, to what it can't know, then even just going back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, there's plenty of stuff in there that we can't know. This was written down by people who told others that they had received the word of God and, and written that down. By all reasonable accounts, from my view, the story of Genesis doesn't add up. And Adam, I'm a, I'm a huge reggae fan. I love Bob Marley. But if I tried to use Bob Marley's lyrics as a roadmap for how to get here today to meet up with Rory, not only would I forget to dance, I would get lost. And the sad thing with fundamentalism and what both Michael and Rory were pointing to earlier 
is that sometimes the God of the fundamentalist and the God that atheists don't believe in looks identical. And those ancient stories and how we're to read them is actually part of the problem that there's a lot of people who are trying to read Bob Marley lyrics as a roadmap instead of learning what the dance of following Jesus or what uh, in Christian parlance would say discipleship is actually about. So it's all open to one's personal interpretation with uh, with some education along the way. In, in that no, case... No, 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 no. You've got to read it rightly. I'm not going to fall for that kind of postmodernism. You know, I, you've hmm. got to read text rightly. You've just got to read it like it's supposed to be, you know, like it was written in its context, in its in its original context. And it doesn't take... that. I think what Jared was saying earlier about special knowledge is you can do that. It's not as if there's just implanted knowledge that's secret that's not that's a form of religion called Gnosticism here the book is public and the claim is public and can be approached in the normal way that's the simple claim yeah yeah I, I totally is, agree, Michael. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I'm saying, Adam, that um, sure, yeah. the tradition in which you read scripture is open source. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's uh, there for, for everybody to engage with. But it's it's hilarious that fundamentalists will go, literal six-day creation, you know, the world is only 6,000 years old. And then it, when it comes to Jesus saying, sell all you have and give to the poor, they'll go, oh, no, that's a metaphor. When it comes to, like, loving your enemies, oh, no, 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 we can still drop bombs on our enemies. That obviously isn't to be taken practically. And that's... That, of course, is a question of how we actually engage a text, because unlike our Muslim neighbours and friends, our books are not written in ways where an angel comes and says, recite word for word. For us, the word is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and the tradition and how we treat the Bible authoritatively is reading it within a tradition that points to his life. Michael Rory, is that something you'd both say amen to? I could go first. No, I'd say amen to that, absolutely. The Christian claim, absolutely, is that God has revealed himself in Jesus and the scriptures bear witness to Jesus. And I think sometimes, to use a metaphor I got from Michael, I think, Christians come off looking like your dad dancing at your 21st when... I just want to say my dad when we, answer my 23rd. I would never <laughs> impute him with that. Uh, we, we end up looking like idiots because we end up using the Bible for purposes it was not intended. And, and uh, the Bible was intended uh, really, uh, I think, as a discipleship manual, as how it is that we have faith in Jesus and follow him. And Jesus is our access to the Old Testament. He's the guy we take. We, we go there because he points us there to understand the uh, the story. This is true, although I want to say the Bible still makes claims about reality that can stand or fall. It's still, it's not simply a how-to. I know you're not saying that, but it's oh, still, sure. you know, there's a kind of, um, uh, there's a good question that the atheist poses is, is this actually meshing with the world that, that we know and that yep. increasingly our technology and, and, and science is revealing? And how is that possible? That that's a question that I think you can't sidestep. I'm that's not fair. you guys saying that, but those are not sidestepable. So how do you approach them? The questions. Hmm. Well, in a number of different directions. The first is to say that there are overlapping, there are in one sense magisteria that are different, to use the common way of thinking, that the Bible is, is speaking about reality in different ways to the way in which science might be talking. For example, in terms of the theory of evolution and the book of Genesis, one of the problems is, of course, that science doesn't stand still, and so the, the, the theory of evolution develops 
uh, it evolves, strangely. And so it immediately kind of trying to jump to making a mesh between the two is only ever a kind of probabilistic exercise. But it's quite possible to say that there is a theistic version of evolution uh, that's quite possible. And there are a number of different ways of doing that. I don't think I need to kind of sign up to one as kind of the definitive answer, but there are numbers of ways in which you can say there is a God behind the process of evolution or guiding the process of evolution. I don't think that's particularly problematic, actually. So, guys, let's shuffle along. One of the things, Rory, that we discussed off air was that you've obviously thought a lot about this and you've done a lot of reading and you, you understand what confirmation bias is. Do you ever catch yourself confirming your own bias? Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a thing that you constantly have to correct for. And here I am, a thirty-nine-year-old pastor with, you know, in a church and so on. There's, a, you know, there's lots of reasons to think that I would like it to be true. Uh, you know, that's a thing where I need to check myself and think: is this is this publicly true? Is this something that, or is this something that I find myself uh, wanting to push along and so on? And so, I, uh, yeah, I think probably like like all of us, confirmation bias is something that we need to check ourselves against. Michael? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, confirmation bias is everywhere you, you go. It's not just something that uh, believers have, I've got to say. I mean, I don't, don't hear you saying otherwise. One thing, though, that I'm interested in at the moment, as a, as again, as a person who grew up in a believing household, um, but then knew about Bob Hawke and Friedrich Nietzsche and other other sort of famously unbelieving children of believing homes, that there is a kind of romanticism about the change of mind, which is in our, in our culture too, the kind of added epistemological value of being the person who, who heroically changed points of view. That also kind of carries, that's a sort of change narrative, which carries a kind of epistemological weight. And I've, I've heard uh, skeptics in particular say, well, I would tend to believe someone more who has changed their mind than someone who has kept their mind, if you see what I mean. I want to be a bit suspicious about change narratives and their supposed superior epistemological weight. They, they're just personal mm-hmm. stories. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, there can be, there can be non-confidential Confirmation bias, if you like, it can be. Well, disconfirmation bias exists. One, I had a, an author on the show previously. Disconfirmation, who, yeah, yeah, who, who enlightened me as to what that was. Okay, well, re- really quickly, Michael. Then, what's something you've changed your mind on regarding your religion? Can you think of anything offhand? Changed my mind on regarding my religion. I think I have. Uh, I mean, I, in all kinds of ways, I have a. I think a more nuanced, a broader sense, a broader understanding of my my own faith, which is, I think, a much bigger one than the the one I, I grew up with I suppose I suppose also now hang on I catch myself saying why do I need to why do I need to answer the question <laughs> with a, why do I feel the pressure to say I've changed my mind because that'll give me a great big tick It'll look like I've shown integrity. Um, you see, that's interesting, isn't it? That that kind of pressure is there. On reflection, it's almost a trick question, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Because you may it, not have. It also reflects, I reckon, a, a, like a locatedness that we, we all share, atheists, mm. skeptics, Christians, and so on, is that we're all post-enlightenment people. And mm. the way we are and the way we think could have been otherwise, like I, I think... Uh, there's a, a philosopher that I'm very fond of called uh, Charles Taylor Charles who talks Taylor. about, you know, uh, he wrote a book called The Secular Age and he, he thinks about how did we end up in this, this secular age, which affects not only secular people and skeptics, but also the way Christians believe. And uh, part of that is the change narrative that uh, a kind of favoring of expressive individualism and not indwelling the tradition, but the way that our post-enlightenment situation shapes the things that we find plausible. And, and that, uh, and I say that's, you know, at one level it's, 
inescapable. But I think it's important to name that and to realise that we kind of sit there and, you know, the, the whole idea, for example, that a change narrative is better than someone who's stuck with something, I think, is part yes, of the, the story. The idea of the change narratives is that I clearly examined as independently as possible my, um, my beliefs right. and then if surely if I've really done that then I must have changed my mind whereas the assumption being that if I haven't that I haven't really looked at it which I'd contest yeah oh, no <laughs> I don't think anyone's anyone suggesting that you haven't uh, looked no. and, and thought quite a good deal about it Jared really quickly same question to you do you yeah I, I catch myself all the time trying to make Christianity into something that hopefully doesn't look like Christ and demand that my life also <laughs> looks like that kind of radical, scandalous grace as, as well. I mean, one of the brilliant critiques of Alain de Botton, who, of course, with a French name, but is the English philosopher who's become a bestseller who wrote Religion for Atheists, is that it ends up with a picture of religion that oh, it has good lessons to teach us about politeness and the importance of ritual. I find myself going, I wish I, that was true, Adam, because that's a lot less of an ask and a lot more of a comfort than having to lay down my life, not only for my neighbour, but for my enemies. And that's actually what Jesus is talking about. And and this goes to the heart of Terry Eagleton's critique of his old friend Christopher Hitchens, who talks about Hitchens' quote around, what was it, the fantasyful, wishful thinking about the meek and peacemakers. And Eagleton's response is, I'm surprised why Hitchens' friends at the Pentagon haven't sought to ban the insidious propaganda for peace and the poor that is the Bible. And that's the bias that I'm constantly confronted as I spend daily time in the scriptures is that Jesus's bias is with the lost, the last, the least, the looked over, the left out, the scapegoated, those with their backs against the wall. Jesus wasn't known for hanging out with religious types, but being found amongst those that the religious right of his time hated and found themselves together in being against. That's a confronting thing for all metaphysics aside, to claim the, the story of Jesus as the, the story for your life. That is a confronting thing. Hmm. I'm in the same boat. I catch myself all the time. I'm not thrilled with what our government is currently doing in, in terms of human rights and so forth, and Jared will probably discuss that a little further down the track. There's new claims being made all the time, and they have to be re-evaluated. So as much as I would like to just have this general disdain for government, each new claim I have to re-evaluate, and I, I really do try to do it as objectively as possible. Adam, I don't think there's anything spiritually revolutionary about disdain. Disdain as a response is completely understandable, but in terms of the kind of transformation that our world goes through an unprecedented ecological crisis where, you know, the reality of 45 million refugees worldwide, what we're facing with 27 million people involved in slavery, more than we've ever seen before in world history, what we're needing and are narratives to actually animate stories of, of transformation are going to have to take something greater than we simply aren't them and we, we don't simply like these policies. There needs to be something imaginative which actually confronts and can puncture the worldview which is sustaining our way of life, which is coming at the cost of the poor mm. uh, at the expense of the earth. And that's what's fascinating for me to, um, and why I've done so much reading around philosophers like Slavoj Žižek in Slovenia like Simon Critchley in the UK, Alain Badou in, in France, who are actually as atheists going, the Christian tradition actually provides a framework, an imaginative framework for social transformation. And I, I think, Adam, that's a really interesting point of connection and conversation that atheists and people of, of faith can have with sleeves rolled up as we work for a world that looks a little bit more like the one we dream of. You know what? You've nailed it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> 
I love that. And I understand you do quite a bit of humanitarian work as well. Look, Adam, all I was trying to do was follow Jesus and I found myself doing all this other stuff. But yeah, in terms of First Home Project and Love Makes a Way and working for the Southern Hemisphere's uh, largest aid development and relief organisation. Am I a preacher in a local church of about 200, 250 people? Yep. Does World Vision pay the paychecks? Yep. But this is actually what I've found myself doing as Michael and, and Rory's lives look like as well, as you try and take Jesus seriously, and, and not in terms of a, a Tolstoy and kind of ethical, can I live up to this, but realising that this is for problematic, broken, if I can use the religious parlance, sinners like Jared, that even people like me with problematic nature of who I am can actually be involved in the practicalities of this kind of kindness and grace that we see in Jesus means that we can be involved in this work as well. Oh, if there were more people who interpreted his works the same way, and but more importantly, acted upon them. I think we'd be decades ahead in terms of human rights. So, Rory, what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything you'd like to promote or a charity you'd like people to go and take a look at? I've written a little book on the resurrection that's coming out. It's called Raised Forever, Connecting Jesus' Resurrection with Our Own. I think it's the kind of thing that a, a sceptical person could could read and profit from, even if it's to eavesdrop on the way us religious types think about these things. Mm-hmm. So, I think if you are if people are interested in that, that's going to be out in a week or so. I hope I don't steal Jared's thunder, but Jared's been part of a thing called Love Makes a Way, and it's got a really, a very modest aim uh, is to get the children of asylum seekers out of detention. And I think that that's a really urgent thing. And I think a, a thing that any, people of good faith can share, I, I don't think it frames you as left or right. It just frames you as someone who doesn't want the children of poor people kept in indefinite detention. So if you follow that hashtag yeah. on Twitter, mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a greatly worthy cause. And I think your listeners would find that a resonant thing. We'll get the link to that off Jared in just a sec. But I was reading in the paper that a young boy of 16 when he discovered that he was going to the detention centre or, or it was delayed. I can't remember the circumstances exactly. Perhaps, Jared, you'll, you'll know more. He slashed his wrists and was transported out in a pool yeah. of blood. It is mental torture, mm-hmm. putting people in indefinite detention with no hope. It, it, it just eradicates hope. And yeah, it's a, that's a beautiful word. And it's just, I, I think that's indefinite detention of children. That, that it's literally hopeless mm. and an awful thing for the, these children to exist without hope. So, Jared, give us a brief synopsis because many of the listeners to the show come from the United States where they don't necessarily have access to Australian news sources. So what's the story with children in detention? Why is this so? Yeah, and if it's primarily, Adam, US listeners, um, it's probably important to say that there are 57,000 children who are being detained in the US at the moment. It's not indefinite and they do have access to education unlike in Australia. But Australia, we have a situation, a stalemate, where we are sending the most desperate people in the world offshore and bullying nations like Papua New Guinea and Manus Island and Christmas Island and now with Cambodia with its, you know, less than ideal history of human rights abuses, to put it mildly, Mm -hmm. we're sending our refugees there if they want our aid money. What we're needing is an efficient processing of these desperate people and instead we have nearly a thousand children locked up in indefinite detention, which is the story you were referring to of these young people who were self-harming 
Self-harm is over 60% of children in this indefinite detention are self-harming and over 90% are experiencing acute depression. So it's a horrific reality that our nation is actually championing in the world. Sadly, Canada and the US's politicians are looking to Australia's response, which is reversing the Article 14 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which was written after the horrors of the Shoah and the um, Jewish Holocaust and the world said never again. It's not a crime to seek asylum. Everybody has the right to seek asylum. And Australia is leading the world in saying, no, we're forgetting those lessons. So as well as checking out Love Makes Away, L-O-V-E-M-A-K-E-S-A-W-A-Y. So if people are looking to get involved in practicalities of that, but I would really recommend both Michael and, and Rory, I I really respect and have great admiration for their work. So both their recent books are well worth checking out to eardrop. Where, you know, none of us are liberal on the theological perspective. In terms of our orthodoxy, you might say we're conservative. And that's probably helpful for people to know as well that in the Australian context, this is conversations with not the fringe of progressives, but where the conversation actually is, particularly amongst my generation. So that's probably helpful for and maybe even hopeful for your listeners to know as well. But Adam, if I could suggest anything for your listeners to read, particularly in terms of resources for confronting fundamentalists and ignorant people of faith, read like Luke's Gospel or spend time with Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. This is something that Gandhi as a Hindu spent an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening meditating on. He could recite the whole thing. There's nothing that floors fundamentalists like when you come back to them with, but doesn't your Jesus say? And desperately, we need people uh, both inside and outside the church calling for a Christianity that looks more like Christ and have discussions with them about what does loving your enemy actually look like? What does your yes being yes actually look like? What does uh, economics, which trusts in the goodness of creation instead of Solomon and his, you know, arms trading, slave dealing kind of empire building. What is it to actually enter into what Jesus' teachings mean? And that's a conversation that people of all faiths and no faiths can have for the common good, which I think is actually really helpful. And finally, Michael. Yeah, Adam, I read a book called My God, My God, Is It Possible to Believe Anymore? Basically because Rory nagged me to write it. <laughs> and I don't think it turned I don't think it's a book that Rory wanted me to write that. It's it's a book which came out of my own experiences of doubt and meeting doubting Christians. It's also a book that's meant to kind of address or, or enter into that conversation about where, what believing is. Do the conditions under which we actually form our beliefs today have they skewed the discussion in a way that makes it uh, impossible or, or difficult, more difficult? And so in that book, I try to address things like expert knowledge and why you know should should we and how should we relate to experts and point out that we do all the time mm -hmm. talk about loss and death and grief which which kind of mark our mm -hmm. existence so much and again frame us in our discussion in our thinking about believing sometimes it's through anger with god that we stop believing so i suppose it's a book for doubting christians and doubting atheists it's kind of meant for the people in the middle who are wanting to kind of get stimulated and and provoked about those sorts of things so that's that's it. It's uh, it's thin. Won't detain you long. Um, <laughs> Michael, thank you for that. That sounds like a good read. And you've agreed to post one out for a listener of this show who I'd very much like to get his feedback on it. We're going to send a copy to Kifri Azrin. 
No problem. My pleasure. Where can we get a copy of the book? It's on Amazon, all the sort of online providers of books. Uh, that's probably the best way, given the the readership is widespread. So it's very much available on online across the world. Gentlemen, one final point before I let you go. Your thoughts on Ken Ham and uh, building his Ark encounter. Go. <laughs> I think uh, with respect, I think he's another. <laughs> so, do you speak for the group? <laughs> I think I'm speaking for the group. I think it's. I think he's very unfortunate. I can't speak about Ken Ham particularly, but sometimes the movement which he represents is less than straightforward. I'd say. I think it's a often sincerely motivated but complete misreading of scripture, which does great damage to it. Not a fan. <laughs> Did that come across? <laughs> I, I used to be a bit more equivocal and say, "Oh, that you know, that's that's a part of the gang," and uh, I, I don't doubt the sincere personal faith of those people of that of that, that gang. But I, I do think it, it's sufficiently damaging to say, "I really, I really don't think that's the way to go." And I think perhaps, as you you probably know, Adam, that's it's a fairly <laughs> modern, fairly modern innovation. That that whole idea of that particular framing of creation science is fairly new and fairly novel. It's not a victimless crime, Adam. I was just going to say one of my big influences. Stanley Howe says we should never doubt the sincerity of George Bush's faith, but what that shows us is how little sincerity actually has to do with following Jesus. Seventy-three million dollars on this ark. You know, I, I pray that Brother Ken might be able to read the teachings of Jesus and consider the poor and think. What would actually witness to Jesus building an ark or, or doing something beautiful that looks like the kind of world that Jesus is ushering in? So I might leave it at that. <laughs> I mean, there's a great book by um, Francis uh, Spufford called Unapologetic. That's uh, one of the best arguments for Christianity I've read. It's just an extraordinary book. And in that book, he's a sort of very much left-leaning, liberal-leaning Cambridge writer. In that book, he says, you know, the, the difficult thing about Christianity, but the true thing is that Sarah Palin is my sister. In, in, you know, still have, I can't reject Sarah Palin, much as I disagree with her fundamental levels. So I can't reject Ken Ham even, but, but that doesn't mean I have to uh, endorse anything he does. So, Rory, Michael, and Jared, thank you very much for coming on The Herd Mentality. All the best with your projects. Thank you very much, Adam. Likewise, mate. Thanks for keeping us Christians honest, eh? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Adam. I've uh, really appreciated your uh, your intelligent hosting and uh, curiosity, and thank you very much. That remains to be seen. I think we'll, we'll let the audience judge, but thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what, going to the dentist makes you stop believing in God. Uh, how was it? I was. I mean, I wasn't in the chair with my son, but you know, I was the one with the uh, credit card at the end. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> Heard mentalists, hear me. Questionable Adam here from the year 2074, communicating to the year 2014 in exactly the same way Jeff Goldblum did with that alien ship in Independence Day using an old Apple computer and an imaginary interface i.e. a completely incomprehensible and utterly implausible set of circumstances. But here's a sound effect to lend some authenticity anyway. In this alternate timeline, not only did Ken Ham succeed in building his stupid full-size ark, but I found a recording of past questionable Adam reading a letter that was sent into the show by Bruce McMicking. Hi Adam, 
I'm in Canada and I was raised Presbyterian, but I've been an atheist since I was 15. I was 17 before I managed to stop being dragged to church every Sunday. I'm now 52. I can't talk religion with my brother, 54, who, although he studied the religions of the Greeks, Romans, India and Northern Europe, he sees them as obviously myth. He's still a Christian because the indoctrination took with him. My sister, 56, will at least talk about religion with me and has no rational answers to my questions. I think she's more of a deist now. I'm working on her. Mum is almost 90 and I still don't know how much she still believes, but Dad died a year and a half ago, almost 91, scared of his fate in the afterlife. It was horribly sad. My brother, sister and I never married because of our religious upbringing that taught us to feel guilty for our sexual desires and made us all quite socially awkward. Now. I mentioned that I stopped believing at 15, but with older, believing siblings to take my cues from, I never really got beyond that. At present, I can only talk to women that I'm not attracted to, or I know for a fact aren't available. At 52, that's most of them now. Anyway, I discovered the atheist experience a few years back, and until then I thought I was the only non-believer in the world. What a horrible way to spend your life. Since then, I've found many wonderful atheist podcasts, including yours. Thank you. Bruce's email is one of many sent to adamatherdmentalitypodcast.com or posted to me via Facebook, Google+, and Twitter, and I really love the feedback. Feel free to record your own thoughts as an MP3 and email them to me to play on the show in the past. Although we could certainly use some more reviews on iTunes and Stitcher as well. Now, many of you have been asking as to Ray and Raylene's whereabouts, and I can say that both of them have been extremely busy in the real world, and I look forward to having them on soon. Next episode, we'll hear from the champion of reason. There's a lot going on, and it's all very time-consuming to put together. I appreciate your patience as I work towards freeing up more time to do the show. Now, you can help. If you enjoy the show, you can support like Patrick, Matthias, Clinton and Peter all did this week, either by visiting patreon.com slash herdmentality or a one-time donation at herdmentalitypodcast.com and clicking the support tab. In fact, the support was so strong this week that we were able to make three Kiva loans to help women with their education. Francella in Nicaragua, Al in Lebanon and Ali in Iraq all received support via Kiva.org. We're really making progress. Thank you. Future questionable Adam, signing off. <laughs>